Good morning, Twitter. I'm Saeed Jones. He, of course, is Isaac Fitzgerald. Friends, it's Wednesday, and you are watching AM to Dia. Well, here's a tweet from you, Saeed, with a quote from the incredible Viola Davis. Have I ever done roles that I've regretted? I have, and the help is on that list. Ooh, girl, let's get into this Hollywood tea. Okay, so Viola Davis, she's promoting her new movie, Widows. I'm really excited to watch Looks that. Looks badass. Looks awesome. Um, and she did an interview, and it was cool. All of the questions were from readers, which is neat. And someone asked, you know, about past roles that you regret or anything, and obviously the help. And, you know, this tracks. I have admired Viola Davis for so long, you know, on stage, um, on TV, and, of course, in film. And, and the help, I was just like... It was frustrating me at the time that an actor as talented as Viola Davis was still giving, being given roles as maids. Which yeah, playing the maid. I'll say this, I have not seen the help either. Yeah. But one of the things that struck me about this, about, about her statement here, is that this movie is not like a movie from the 90s mm. or a movie from the 80s. Okay. It's a movie from 2011. This is a not that long ago movie, so I think it's really interesting to see her kind of open up about how she felt about this film, which for the record got four Oscar noms nominations. Mm -hmm. It won uh, an Oscar for Octavia Octa Spencer, Octavia Spencer mm -hmm. um, and, and, and Davis herself was nominated. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting to see her be like, as, as many accolades as that film got, right. I now, I look back on it and it's not my proudest moment. And, and she says um, that she's like, listen, like when I think of the characters of Minnie and Abilene, those characters are like my grandmother. Those characters remind me of my own mother. And their stories, the stories of the black maids in the 1960s are not really heard in the film. Mm -hmm. Right, it's, it's, it's still centered on what everything means for the white women in the film. And again, an incredible cast. We got Viola Davis, Octavia Spencer, Jessica Chastain, Emma Stone's last role before she became an Asian American woman. You know, incredible work. I, and, and she does say this too. She is very clear that oh, yeah. she enjoyed working with, with the them. crew, uh -huh. with this staff. She's very much about like, it's just looking back and seeing the package as a, the film as a whole. Pretty so let's take it to the timeline. What's a job you have had in the past that you regret? Let us know using the hashtag am to the help <laughs> am to the help do you have a job do you have a job um, so i was thinking about this you know i haven't worked a lot of jobs i feel like viola davis is like that's part of her having an illustrious career is she can have this perspective that i'm not there yet but i was thinking as a as a writer mm. you know we take on like jobs and, and and appearances and things like that and there have been invitations to speak at colleges or literary venues that kind of thing where i've had a feeling mm. and it's like uh -huh, maybe the money is good or it can't hurt and then i've shown up, I've done it, and almost always those are the very things where something truly crazy or frustrating happens. Mm often linked to race, and I think that's interesting in terms of what Viola Davis is saying. And so I've had to learn to trust my intuition. That's where the hair touching more. happens. That's almost always, that's honestly. The hair, honestly. Yeah. What about you? I, You've listen, had a lot of jobs. Well, yeah. I mean, listen, you have had an illustrious career. I've had a lot of jobs. <laughs> uh, you know, and definitely jobs that are, like, I was 12 years old and I was a landscaper. Let me tell you, I sucked at it, driving the uh, tractor. I wasn't that good at it. Carrying the grass. I was I was pretty small. But it's not exactly, uh, I think, a part of the conversation that Viola Davis right. is having here Love about this. the help. Levels. Levels. Well, exactly. uh, speaking of levels, let's talk about Hurricane Florence because, wow. Here's a tweet from the National Weather Service in Wilmington, North Carolina, with the latest satellite image of Florence. Look at that image. That storm is like That's the entire East Coast. Terrifying. You can kind of see it going all the way from Florida all the way up to basically New York. 
That's, That's very scary. Huge. Yeah, and here's what they had to say. Most likely arrival time of tropical, for, tropical storm force winds in North Carolina is late morning, early afternoon, Thursday. That's tomorrow, friends. Today is the last day to safely travel out of the area. Please heed any evacuation orders. And this tweet from Robert Hewitt Wolf really drives that point home. Here's what I learned evacuating from Katrina. Get the fuck out now. Seriously, the sooner you leave, the farther, farther you'll get. We left New Orleans 36 hours before landfall and got to Houston in 10 hours. People who left 12 hours later were still on the road when Katrina hit. And you do not want to be in your car, out on the road, stuck in traffic when something like this is going down. That's really scary. And I understand that, you know, having to evacuate is expensive. Mm -hmm. It's certainly disruptive. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you're trying to, like, is it worth it? What if we just leave and then we're coming back a few? But your life and the life of your loved ones, I, I feel, is immeasurable and absolutely worth the temporary inconvenience. That's we were talking to Dr. Shepard on the show yesterday, yes. and he was saying, get out now. I also want to say a quick message. Employers, please let your employees evacuate. There are people who are worried, and we have heard this, mm -hmm. that there are people that cannot get out because they're like, well, my boss hasn't given me the right to go. So please, employers, let your employees evacuate. Yeah, let, let's, this could be a whole, let's just please, mm -hmm. please. Okay, with the storm in mind, it's time to go live from the district with BuzzFeed News Capitol Hill reporter Paul McLeod. Good morning, Paul. Hi, good morning. Hi. All right, well, here's a tweet from the president this morning. We got A-pluses for our recent hurricane work in Texas and Florida and did an unappreciated great job in Puerto Rico, even though an inaccessible island with very poor electricity and totally incompetent mayor of San Juan. We are ready for the big one that is coming. A-pluses. A-pluses. Who gives... Who gives those out? Who's the, like, the principal of weather school? Who's giving out A-pluses? <laughs> yep. Weirdly enough, he never actually cited where those A-pluses supposedly came from. Wow. Uh, I'm going to guess like Breitbart News or something. Yeah. Totally shocking. Yeah. Well, uh, BuzzFeed's uh, Nidhi Prakash has a scoop that tells a different, dare I say it, truthful story. 2,431 Puerto Rican families applied for FEMA assistance to give loved ones who died during and after Hurricane Maria a funeral. They have only approved 75 of those requests. So, Paul, how has FEMA justified giving so little funeral assistance, again, A-plus job, uh, to Puerto Ricans in need? Uh, so FEMA is essentially washing their hands of it and saying, look, this isn't any issue on our end. Uh, we have this criteria, and in order to supply, apply for funeral assistance and to qualify for it, you need to actually be able to demonstrate that the person who died actually died as a result of this natural disaster. And to do that, you need a government official to essentially sign off on it. And that means a local government official, so a Puerto Rican government official. And uh, these people were not able to get those letters for a variety of reasons. And so FEMA just said, we're sorry, you didn't, you didn't qualify. You basically didn't qualify. How does that track with what we're hearing out of funeral homes, also cremations uh, that are happening in Puerto Rico? Well, so it's all part of this giant issue of how many people actually died as a result of this hurricane, right? So initially, the government uh, said, I think it was 64 people had died, and that was uh, a very direct number. We now have had that estimated slightly upwards to 3,000 people who died either directly or secondarily from this hurricane. So you've got this, this catch-22 where you've got 
and, and this is even a broader issue, but you've always got the government impetus in situations like this is to downplay how much damage there is, how many people actually died as a result of this, because like we saw with the Trump tweet, governments always want to look like they're doing a really good job. The problem here is people caught in between two levels of government had one level refusing to accept or recognize that their loved ones were, their deaths were a result of this hurricane, and then another level of government refusing to pay for these funerals unless Puerto Rico agreed and said that this was caused by caused by the hurricane. So they're trapped in the middle and they were not able to get uh, any of this support. And uh, we also had reported that Nitty reported uh, that there were uh, many people who were turning to cremation because it was cheaper than burial, but then that caused all kinds of problems with the record keeping where the people who were doing the cremation didn't know whether to send those into the central database. And it just all added to this confusion that made it more and more difficult for people to actually get any government help. This is uh, really tragic. And of course, every natural disaster is unique, right? The circumstances that Puerto Ricans dealt with post uh, Maria are unfortunately going to be very different um, from whatever happens with Hurricane Florence. But but what can we learn? What is, what is worth kind of focusing on as we look at how FEMA handled funeral assistance with Hurricane Maria and we begin to look at a potentially tragic storm with Hurricane Florence? I mean, one thing, uh, the actual accounting for the damage and the casualties of these storms it has to be the top lesson from what happened in Puerto Rico. We can never again have a situation where we are erasing thousands of people's deaths and not attributing them to the storm because the government wasn't prepared either for lack of infrastructure or for lack of planning or whatever it was that went into that person's situation. But second of all, we also can't, in my opinion, have these two levels of government butting heads and just completely screwing over the people in the middle. FEMA has every ability to alter the qualifications for this funeral assistance program. They have, there's nothing stopping them from being able to go in and be like, this is a mess. Government officials are not recognizing that these deaths were caused by this hurricane, but we are just going to, we're going to accept this and we're going to start paying out for people. It's probably too late now. It's been, what, a year? And at this point, I don't know if anyone's going to be able to get that assistance, but this did not need to happen. This was entirely preventable. I mean, literally FEMA makes the rules. Well, speaking of FEMA, last night, Rachel Maddow broke this story, document shows Trump administration took $10 million from FEMA and gave it to ICE for detentions ahead of the 2018 hurricane season. So gotta be honest, Paul, that doesn't sound good. What's the story here? So yes, they've transferred, I think it's 9.8 million specifically to ICE and it was uh, during the sort of height of the family separation crisis where they were having to, they were struggling to build enough capacity to hold all of these immigrants so that they were detaining and trying to detain indefinitely. So we saw them take about $10 million from uh, the FEMA budget. Now, I should say that FEMA, I've got it here, FEMA denies that this comes from the actual storm response side of their department. They say it is coming from uh, travel, public engagement sessions, IT security support and infrastructure maintenance and IT investments. So. This is obviously just breaking. We don't know conclusively how that is going to affect FEMA's operations. Although I would also point out that things like infrastructure and like any of this advanced prevention uh, side of it is, is also still very important. And obviously this is going to be controversial to see millions of dollars taken out of that and put towards detaining people. 
Okay. The Department of Homeland Security does oversee both FEMA and ICE. And I think when we go into uh, these kinds of storms and just hurricane season, um, understandably, the administration comes under scrutiny for these kinds of decisions. So I guess, is it is it fair for this money transfer kind of story to even be framed in this way? Or is it just, are we just kind of jumping to conclusions? I mean, it, I, I do think this is one of those things that might initially look a little bit worse than it is. I don't think this is uh, money being taken away from, you know, emergency hospital beds and sent over to ICE. These kind of transfers within government are typical. I mean, they're, they're actually very normal. But this one is certainly quite notable. I mean, this is a question of government priorities. And the government did spend many millions of dollars to... Uh, to fund the infrastructure for these detention programs, and we are now seeing that FEMA is one of is one of the agencies that had to sacrifice a bit because of that. And I think it's just too soon to say yet whether what the real world impact of that ten million dollars. It is worth noting that I think that's about. I mean, I think FEMA's budget is a billion dollars. We're not talking about huge numbers in terms of proportion, uh, but I mean, this is absolutely something that the government is going to have to ultimately answer for and show that they were not sacrificing on the emergency readiness side in order to fund these uh, uh, detentions. All right. Well, we will see, of course, how this all unfolds over the next few days and weeks. Paul, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Cheers, guys. Cheers. Cheers. Well, listen, we've got a lot more did news. Did we just say cheers? We did. Yeah, Canadian, you know, we've got a lot more news to cover. But up next, Fire Tweets. <laughs> Sorry. All right, let's get into it with these fire tweets. You ready? Mm -hmm. All right. Josh, you tweeted, I fucking love toast. What absolute genius took a bite of bread and was like, cook it again? Unreal. <laughs> okay, so. <laughs> I little, like that you, you saw just, the you had no I reaction. Had that, I was, <laughs> where is your support this morning? <laughs> Jesus! I was thinking. I was thinking about like, am I going to talk about doing edibles? So I did an edible last night, and I saw this tweet. That's where my that's why I got I'm quiet. <laughs> Where's the support now? Do I it. I did an edible last night just a half to help me go to sleep. And I, I was reading this tweet, and my dumbass didn't see the first part. I fucking love toast. So I was like, wait, what does happen if you cook bread again? Like I like it was. I was staring at it, looking at my phone, made peace, and moved on. So God. sorry. I totally. Tweet so I can't laugh He's at it. It's gonna be totally silent. It's fine. I'll <laughs> laugh at my own jokes. Okay, this comes from Jay. Good. <laughs> thank you. Whoever the sound guy is today, Dan, All thank right. you very I will much. Talk to you later, Dan. Jay tweeted, I'm just impressed with how ugly I'm willing to look in public these days. Which I mean, yes. Woo! Mood. Willing? Let me tell you this. When I first moved to New York, I was like, okay, maybe I can go outside in my robe. Like, you know, take the trash to the can in my robe. It's not safe. At this point, I treat most of Park Slope like it's my living room. Yeah. Like, you will catch me three blocks down ordering a bagel in slippers. <laughs> well, I would argue, oh, you got wild. <laughs> I mean, part of the challenge is, I feel like Brooklyn, there's such a high density of writers, media people. Live, so it, it, when I briefly lived in Brooklyn, it was like just step out on the street corner and be like, hey, no, no. hey. Man, I will be <laughs> out there in a Hawaiian shirt no, and darling. sweatpants. Mm -mm. I am looking gross. That's creep. That's me. <laughs> All right, here we go. I finally got a laugh out of you. Oh, sorry. 
Poncho, you tweeted, always confused when I see an extremely viral post of stop saying thing I've never heard anyone say even a little once in my entire life. Yeah. This is a real Twitter thing. That, it is a very Twitter phenomenon. I, you know, and I don't, I, I feel like this is where we find ourselves on the continuum where we end up like PC culture and people are too sensitive. But it does happen often where I'm like, I never in my life would have thought to say X terrible, awful thing. Yeah. 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 But you coming out against, how can you say something, so what is what is the gif? It's like, how, how can you say something so controversial yet so brave? <laughs> <laughs> It's hard out here. It's hard out here. Okay, tweet of the day. It's so cute. From Jacob Houston, who's an actor. He's on, um, I think, AP Bio. Okay. Got a, a celebrity. A celeb tweet okay. of the day. A woman asked me if she could take my parking spot in a busy parking garage today, but I couldn't remember where I parked, so she followed me around for like 15 minutes while I tried to find my car, and it was so awkward, and I couldn't stop sweating. Total chaos. <laughs> I love this. <laughs> Dispatches from Los Angeles. <laughs> I just, I, have you ever been stuck? You all of a sudden get in kind of like a run around, a muck oh, about yeah, with yeah. a stranger. And, and I like, totally get nervous. I can see this like, oh, luster. She's looking, she's looking. <laughs> Are there kids in her car? Oh my God. <laughs> it's hot in the parking garage. <laughs> all right, listen, coming up, I'm talking to Shannon Purser from Sierra Burgess. Is a loser, but first, it's still a good morning Twitter. <sighs> they might be coming for our memes. We're going to talk to Ryan Broderick about it. Not the memes. Not the memes. <laughs> Welcome back. It is still a good morning, Twitter. Is it? Is it? <laughs> Earlier this morning, Ryan Broderick tweeted something that wasn't at all alarming and disturbing. Reminder that the EU will vote this afternoon on whether or not to essentially destroy the internet as we know it. What? what? <laughs> <laughs> well, here's the thing. That vote happened, and here's what Laura Kayali had to say about the results. The copyright directive is adopted by the European Parliament with 438 votes in favor, 226 against, and 39 abstentions. Publishers' rights and platform liability for copyrighted content are in the text. Life comes at you fast. Let me break that down. That means they come in for our means. Oh, my God. That means the EU is passing legislation that's basically like, you can't do that. Y'all gonna have to get like me and just learn how to meme yourself. That's all you gonna be, that's all we're gonna be able to do. <laughs> that's all it's gonna be. Oh my because god. Because every meme, and like I use the uh, the um, curtsy gif a lot from yes. Alice in Wonderland. I'm gonna be having to pay Disney every like time I use it. Y'all know I love using pose memes. That's for the messed TV up. Show. Shook. Anyway, Ryan Broderick, Deputy Global Director for BuzzFeed, joins us now from London because we need answers. Good morning, London. Or <laughs> Ryan. <laughs> Hey guys. Hi. Okay, so to be honest, clearly Isaac and I waited way too long to panic because neither of the us- The vote happened. The vote has happened and we didn't really hear about the story until we saw your tweet. So I'm blaming you for this. Blaming you for this. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's fine. I sort of forgot about it too. Uh, the thing about like European Parliament is that it's incredibly boring, which makes it really hard to like follow. Um, but basically to sort of catch you up, um, a vote was done this afternoon or is done today um, around this copyright directive, but it won't be until January when it finally gets locked in. They basically go into what's called negotiations from now until January, and they sort of like work out the details. But there are two pieces of this Article 11 and Article 13 that aren't changing as far as how they're worded, um, and those two are the worst parts of this. Those are the ones that can like make memes illegal and make it like illegal to like hyperlink. 
sort of. I'm sorry, you said that so calmly and I am so panicked. Ryan, is there anything that's keeping you calm or could this really have huge implications, especially outside of the EU? I mean, it's uh, it's legitimately like uh, like the this is fine dog. Like you're in you're in hell and you're just sort of sitting around. Like so, basically, the way the, 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 what's really scary about this is that like um, when the EU does things like this, it typically has a ripple effect. Uh, most companies don't really want to have to like make one thing for Europe and then one thing for the rest of the world. So we're sort of like in this very strange moment where between now and January we have to kind of like hold their breath and like see what this law actually looks like. But um, it's very possible that the, the ability to upload photos and videos to the internet is going to get like a lot slower and a lot worse and copyright's going to be flagged a lot more. And, um, the fundamental like uh, technology behind linking to your favorite news sites will change. Um, so that'll be a problem. Um, like there's lots of like big unknowns in this and it's very weird and very scary. Yeah, it's, it's, this is huge. Um, so for people who are like, wait, what catching up, can you just break down for us exactly how this would impact memes? Like exactly how the law would be applied that would make it more difficult for us to use memes on Twitter or on Facebook or Instagram. Sure. So this copyright directive has two things, Article 11 and Article 13. Um, the nicknames for both are Article 11, they call it the link tax, which is essentially like if Google wanted to link to your website, they would have to pay you to do so. Um, but it's really vaguely written. So people are really unclear like how that could be enforced. Um, and basically, if you link to me, like you have to pay me for the privilege of linking to me. Um, but it's all very gray area right now. And then Article 13, uh, they're calling essentially the uh, the upload filter. And it's the idea that websites like Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, any sort of user-generated content website would have to have a filter in place. They would have to scan whatever you're uploading for copyrighted content and flag it before it goes live. So the way it works now is like you upload like a song with lyrics to YouTube, and it could be up there for years before somebody notices the EU basically is saying that they want it to be set up so you can't be live without being scanned, which means there'll be a lot of really bad filters put up in place, like a lot of false positives. I think for a, a large chunk of like people who just upload stuff regularly, it'll be so cumbersome that people just won't want to use it. Um, and it'll be very similar in how it plays out to what happened over the summer with GDPR. For most Americans, it was probably just like a lot more websites asking them about privacy settings. But that was an EU uh, regulation that went into place. And then all of a sudden, the rest of the internet followed because it was just easier than having to make a separate, you know, European everything. Um, and so that's, that's kind of the outcome that we're looking at. Um, and it's really unclear how it will go in the next couple of months before it gets locked into place in January. All right, now, Ryan, this, uh, thank you so much for all of that clarification. Mm -hmm. It does seem a little antiquated to me. It seems a little bit trying to get toothpaste back in the tube. Mm -hmm. um, that said, I've heard that the people behind this bill uh, really think that they're doing it to help journalists, to help artists. So I'm not really seeing it, but could, could you explain that argument? Yeah, sure. So um, the... The main, the main sort of guy leading the charge for this, his name is uh, Alex Voss. He's a German MEP, and he sees it as him uh, taking power away from American big tech companies and giving it back to the little guy. The only problem is the little guy in the situation are massive publishing houses and European record labels. So it's not exactly like giving it to like a little guy so much as like giving Paul McCartney, like who is a very big uh, fan of this directive, more 
you know, say over where his music goes. Um, and so I've, I've been speaking to some activists and some MEPs who are against this sort of thing today. And the big thing that everyone is saying is that um, it's basically just giving power back to the old power systems. And I know it sounds very strange in 2018 to be like, we need to stand up for Facebook and Google because like they're not good either. But like the law that the EU is trying to use to go after these platforms will have ripple effects that uh, will most likely hurt the little guy more than the big guy. In fact, I have, a, I have an example if you've got time. In Spain, they tried to do this already in 2014 and you can't use Google News in Spain. And over the last couple of years, they've done studies, and the only people that were affected by the ban of Google News were small publishers, not large publishers. So if all of a sudden it was illegal to have Google News in Europe, it wouldn't affect Le Monde or like the big newspapers. It would affect bloggers. It would affect vloggers. It would affect small cr content creators. Wow. So that's sort of the irony of this whole thing. That Ooh. is incredible. I get that. I can't believe I'm just hearing about this today. Ryan, thank you so much for joining us this morning and telling us about this. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, yep. <laughs> you said he looked calm. I think dude is exhausted. Yeah, fair enough. All right. Well, listen, up next, I'm sitting down with Shannon Purser. Stick around. Use all the memes while you can. Give, yeah, give, meme, give, meme, give, meme, give, meme, give, meme, meme, Oh, meme. man. It's over. <laughs> I'm sitting down with the star of Sierra Burgess is a Loser, Shannon Purser. Shannon, good morning, how are you? I'm great, thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on, I absolutely love your dress. Thank you very much. It is badass. Thanks. All right, let's start here. You, uh, you did science fiction, Stranger Things, you've done drama, Riverdale. What was it like to do a romantic comedy? It was fun. I. I just find the found the project to be so unique. Um, you know, I am not the traditional leading lady, so it does feel like you know a very empowering uh, step forward, I guess, for me to to get the lead in this. Um, and it was definitely a real um, test of my acting chops too, which was good. Which yeah, that felt feels really good. Was rom coms was that something you kind of always wanted? Like, did you have a favorite rom com growing up? Or? Yeah, I mean, I. I have three sisters and we spend a lot of our time kind of like watching rom-coms and you know laughing about them because some of them are stupid but you know <laughs> some of them are wonderful too um like i love 10 things i hate about you yes i love anything tom hanks is in so like you've got mail like yeah. sleepless in seattle right. yes playing the hits but that is part of the fun of them right is that we kind of love sometimes they can feel a little stupid and that's something that we love yeah. in them no for sure absolutely well listen uh your star noah centineo was on the show just oh, last week and we asked him if he had a message for you oh, no. and he did so we're gonna play ah. the clip right now shannon it's noah what's up dude I love you. I'm going to see you very soon, actually. I'm FaceTiming you later today. It's really cool because I'm talking about it in the past, but it's going to be, it's in the future for you currently, but it's going to be in your past when you see this. Anyway, I love you so much. Uh, you're going to kill this. Just like, you know, don't freak out. You know, it's fine. They're really nice here sometimes, but sometimes they're really mean. I'm kidding. They're great. Uh, I miss you. I love you. I hope I get to see you very soon. Oh, and at this point, Sarah Burgess is a loser would have came out already, which means you he slayed it. Congratulations, baby girl. You deserve all this and way more. Ooh, yes. Do you have, do you want to look into the camera? You want to give a message back to Noah? Oh, wow. Um, thank you, Noah. That was so nice. Sierra Burgess is out and I'm so proud of you and the work that we've done together. And I hope you're doing good. Let's hang out. Oh, I'm sorry. I love it so much because I love 
Friendship, really. Uh, I host the show with Saeed, and he's like my best friend, so we host it together. One of the things that I loved about Sierra Burgess is a loser was the friendships in it. Yeah. Dan, like, it was so, so good. Did you like, did it remind you of any friendships you had in high school? Were there any friendships that were like important to you like that, or that yeah. grew like they do in the movie? No, definitely. And I think um, another thing that I found like, uh, I don't know, very like relevant is how like Sierra kind of you know, at times, like, ignores her friends and, like, forgets about them. And I think, you know, it's so easy to take your friends for granted. Um, but they're, like, uh, your biggest support system, you know? They're there for you through thick and thin, so. And, th and that's an important part of friendship, right? Is sometimes we, we can get drawn up into our own things. Yeah. But they are still there for us. Definitely. I'm, like, kind of a bad texter sometimes. Oh, you, really? Uh, you, You're you, one of you those. Get, no. <laughs> Call me out. Read me. Go no, ahead. No, no, That's no. not you. I'm actually kind of the same way sometimes. No. Not like a bad texter, but like, I don't know. I, I do get like caught up in my own head and like forget to respond or just like put it off. It's so. always the people I love the most I know. that I find in like, right? It's like that's it's the down. one where you're like, oh, I want to do it so well. And so all of a sudden it falls to the bottom of the inbox yeah. and then you never get back to them. And you're like, cool, I'm a bad friend. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad that we can sit in that together. No, we can own that. Sure. Um, but speaking of texting, one of the things that you and, 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 and uh, or Sierra and, and Jamie, the characters, have, um, they have this whole relationship over the phone, mm -hmm. over text. How did you and Noah, because your chemistry is so there, how did you guys kind of get that to come across while being separated? Um, well, what was great is that he was always like actually on the line, you know? So we were actually talking to each other in all of those scenes, um, which was so great. I mean, it was just so helpful to have, you know, somebody to work with, you know? And even if he weren't talking, but like just to know that he was there like listening would, would mean a lot. But yeah, we had all those conversations and it just felt very real. Like we were having, having a chat. Yeah. I feel like if Noah Centineo was kind of offset for me all the time, I would probably feel really good about life. <laughs> yeah, 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 I felt really good. It was a good time. <laughs> That's absolutely awesome. Um, Sierra's character, it's it, like you, you, you touched on at the top of the uh, interview, not a size zero, not your usual rom-com lead. Mm -hmm. um, and it was so wonderful and refreshing to kind of see that play out. What did it mean for you as an actor to kind of see this role come across your desk? Yeah. Um, I don't know, you know, it's just like not the kind of role that I would have envisioned being available for myself and, um, you know, I certainly didn't really have a lot of role models growing up or actors who, who looked like me. So, you know, the thought that this movie or, you know, another project that I do will encourage a young person to feel more comfortable with themselves and to know that they they could act if they wanted to, or they can achieve their dreams, you know, is is really powerful to me. Yeah, and they don't have to be limited by that. That's so yeah. important. Why do you think Sierra, the character, why do you think Sierra was motivated, um, such a confident character, but to hide herself from Jamie? Yeah, well, I mean, I think, you know, her mom is like a uh, motivational speaker. So, like, she, you know, she has this expectation of having to, like, keep a good face, you know, like her mom is supposed to like have it all together. So she feels like she's supposed to have it all together. You know, like she's the daughter of this, like this woman who appears, you know, very confident and perfect. And so, you know, I'm sure she's been like telling herself like affirmations in the mirror since she was like a little kid. Um, and I think she's never really like had a reason to doubt herself, you know, cause she surrounded herself with loving and supportive people. And, um, you know, it's not until she like falls in love with the sky and she suddenly finds herself, um, you know, being uh, placed against or compared to Veronica that she's 
you know, starts to wonder if she can measure up, like if she is good enough. Yeah, I mean, and again, it's, 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 it can feel hard, even with all these support networks, right? Even if you are surrounded by people who love you, you can still have these moments Absolutely. of self-doubt. Um, the, the, a lot of the problems for Sierra stem from her catfishing Jamie. What do you think audiences can learn from what I would argue is a more complicated rom-com heroine? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't say that it's a, you know, traditional rom-com. I think that there obviously is like a little bit of, uh, of darkness to it, but I think that comes from, you know, the reality and like the lengths that people are willing to go to when they feel that insecure. Um, and I really just hope that people will, you know, take from the movie a message of authenticity, you know, and how validating it is to be seen and loved for who you are and not to be conformed to change. And I think that, um, you know, the movie specifically kind of addresses like the pressure society places on women, you know, like the, the idea that you have to be a certain size or that, you know, um, you have to like compete with other girls. So I just, I don't know, I really hope that it sort of um, empowers young women specifically to, to be themselves and to be honest and vulnerable even when it's difficult. Yeah, and to find those friendships. Again, Sierra and Veronica coming together and yeah. turning that into a friendship situation was so uh, incredible. And also, who amongst us has not tried to be somebody we're not? Absolutely. And that's something that I, I, that's something that I really connected with when I watched the film. Yeah. Just real quick, I gotta ask one. I'm a huge Stranger Things fan, <laughs> you know? I'm sorry, I'm sure at this point. Like, are you just sick of Barb? Were you sick of Barb in like 2017? I'm not sick of Barb. <laughs> I'm sick of the... I don't know. I don't know what I'm sick of exactly. I mean, as long as I mean, I would. I just wish people would call me by my name. To be yes. honest, you know, like I, I wish people like would not call me Barb when I'm walking down. As the you're street. walking down the yeah. street, yeah, I could feel how that would get a little annoying. Do you think there was a huge hashtag though, justice for Barb? We saw family, her family in season two. Do you think that is justice for Barb, or do you think there's there's room for more Barb? Oh, I don't know. I mean. I, I'm glad that she got a funeral. I feel like that was that was great. I feel like people deserve that. Um, I I don't know. It is kind of a bummer that her parents will never really know like what exactly happened to her because it's like all been covered up. Um, so I hope that the truth comes out one day, you know. And of course, like in an alternate universe, I would love for her to like come back from the dead and like avenge herself or whatever. But you is know, that something I, that's happening? Is, <laughs> has your phone been ringing? It's is that not? No, right. unfortunately. I had to ask. You never know, though. Well, listen. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it, Shannon. Thank you for being <laughs> thank here. You so much. Sierra Burgess is a loser. Is streaming on Netflix. You can watch it right now. Up next, more AM to DM in just a moment. Here's a tweet from Viv Heaton, me watching the American Horror Story Apocalypse trailer for the 27th time. I feel like that gif is like the only gift that we got from that hotel season. Anyway, the latest season of American Horror Story premieres tonight. I'm very excited. I'm freaking out in a good way. I've even rewatched Coven to prepare. Michael Blackman, BuzzFeed News entertainment reporter, joins me now to discuss tonight's apocalypse. Right. Hi. Hi. Are you, like, how are you feeling? Are you freaking out? In, on the inside, on the inside. Okay. Um, but it's just you never know what can go wrong with the Ryan Murphy show. That's true. So I'm like tentatively excited. And we're know? gonna get into yeah. that, right? Because right. it is, it's it's a complicated love. Right. It's a complicated yes. love, American Horror Story. So what is the premise of American Horror Story Apocalypse? 
Well, the premise is basically in the title. It's mm-hmm. the apocalypse, mm-hmm. so it's the end of the world, okay. which is kind of timely. <laughs> um, but essentially, the seeds for this season were planted during the first season. Mm-hmm. Um, essentially, there was like a demon baby who was born to this woman named Vivian Harmon, um, played by Connie Britton. Mm-hmm. Um, and essentially, now we're about we're we're about to see like the, de- the destruction that this baby is going to bring to the world. Okay, so um, so the baby that and I watched Murder House. It was good. Uh-huh. So the baby that we see at, born into ghosts at the end of the first season <laughs> yeah. is now an adult in, in the Correct. ongoing timeline of American Horror Story. Yes. Okay. So it's so it's it, and and is are any other seasons? Because Coven is a part of. This Correct. Too. Yeah. So this is going to be a crossover season. It was okay. supposed to premiere next year, but then Ryan Murphy sent out a tweet like earlier this summer oh, saying that really? actually it's going to happen this year. Snap. So essentially, this is going to be a crossover between Murder House, the first okay. season, and uh, the third season of Coven. But he also described it as being like the love boat, and I don't know if anybody else will get that sort of reference. I, I don't. But Do it's you? going to be. Like, I don't understand it exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but the only way I can think of it is like is basically going to be like a reboot, sort of. Okay. Like in terms of like you're being introduced to like familiar faces. Okay. Um, so there's going to be like a parade Love of both. people that you've seen uh-huh. before um, coming in, coming to this uh, eighth season of American Horror Story. Fascinating. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm excited to, I, Jessica Lange, we love her, yes. and I was just re- re-watching Coven and mm-hmm. watching her play Fiona. I would be I'm very excited to see Miss right. Fiona Good come back, because she ain't good. She's so bad. Naughty Pine. Naughty Pine. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So here's a tweet from Nosebleeds, which, are you okay, Nosebleeds? Here's something you were saying. Ryan Murphy, after asking Jessica Lange and Stevie Nicks back to American Horror Story, yeah, going to give the gays everything they want. It's true. He is good at that. So we're excited about Jessica Lane, obvious. But um, what else are we hype about? What else? Are, why are the gays so excited about the apocalypse? I feel like the gays are super excited <laughs> because the witches of Coven are back. What? And like, you have Sarah Paulson as the Supreme. You have Stevie Nicks who's going to be coming back. Mm-hmm. Also, Dylan McDermott is going to be back. Oh, you know, he's been showing us a okay. lot of body right, in the man. first season of American yes. Horror Story. Um, so I think it's just like we're seeing like these veteran people come back. And Jessica Lange, obviously, has come back for one episode. But it's like she was the beating heart of yes. that series. Like when I rewatched those episodes, I'm just like, this is this. She was the draw. That's why I wanted to watch this. Yes. So here's the thing with American Horror Story. Why I wanted to talk to you, someone who's been mm. watching it throughout. I've watched... Most, if not some, of every season of American Horror Story. Mm -hmm. And it is, uh, it can get a little crazy. (laughs) I always love the casting, right? Mm -hmm. It's always, I mean, my goodness, Angela Bassett playing Marie Laveau and Kathy Bates, Lady Gaga, Dylan Mm -hmm. McDermott, Connie Britt. Incredible casting and a lot of, uh, particularly women, being given great material, right? But it often comes with a lot of baggage in terms of messiness. Are you are you still like absolutely into the project of American Horror Story at this point? Okay, so I'm going to be super honest okay, right now. Let's go. Let's go there. <laughs> I've watched American Horror Story every single season up until season six, which was Roanoke. But then when he started talking Ooh. about the election, mm-hmm. season seven, I was like, I think I watched like the pilot, mm-hmm. and then I had to pretty much like bow out. Okay. But like with him announcing like everyone coming back, I'm like, okay, I think I'm back in this, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So, like I said earlier, like I'm excited, okay. but I'm I'm going to see how it goes. Yeah, we'll see. Know? I mean, I think we're, you know, bringing back Jessica Lange, mm-hmm. I think Coven uh, and Murder House arguably are two of the stronger seasons. Shout out to Asylum because that's still that's the best. They, when will your faves, <laughs> darling? Okay, um, there, there's a lot going for. So how about we'll watch it and then you'll come back in a couple of weeks and right. we'll we'll. 
And we'll, we'll have a verdict. See how it's going. We'll yeah. have a verdict because, okay. yeah, American Horror Story be testing me. Okay, Michael, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Sadie. All right, friends, Twitter, we want to hear from you. Are you going to be watching American Horror Story Apocalypse? Are you ready? Are you shook? Are you just over it? Tweet us your thoughts using the hashtag AM to DM. Up next, Stephanie sits down with jewelry mogul Kendra Scott. Uh oh, jewels. Lots of jewels. Earlier this summer, I tweeted, I went to visit the Kendra Scott office in Austin where most employees are women. There was a breastfeeding room, a whole nursery area where parents could bring in and soothe their kids. I saw a woman with a baby just working. It made me happy slash a little sad to see because I wish all had that. Well, I'm so excited to be joined now by Kendra Scott herself, the founder and CEO of her jewelry company. Kendra, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So as I mentioned, I got to visit your office last summer. And to be completely honest, it kind of seemed like a working woman's utopia. There were women everywhere, very few men, which, <laughs> great. Yeah. Um, and there was women just walking around with babies. It was, seemed so family friendly. So I'm curious, is this a vision that you set out when you were founding your company or was it kind of a necessity with so many female employees? No, it was definitely a vision from the beginning. You know, I started this company with my with my first son when he was first born. So he was three months old when I started and I really wanted to be the best mom that I could be and wanted to create a company that supported other mothers and other parents like me that, you know, you could have a great career, but you could also be present for your family. And that really was my goal setting out the company 16 years ago that yeah that baby is now 16 years old so it really was that environment and it is a utopia when you what you were walking in was a dream it was my dream so I don't know if you've ever walked inside someone's dream before but that was literally it was how can we create an environment that supports these women in such a fundamental way that they can have balance and do all the things they want to do in their lives and literally just be happy when people talk about making workplaces better for working women and mothers, one of the big things you hear is, oh, it'll be a distraction, or oh, it's not professional. What do you say to people who say things like that when you present them with your office that it seems to be working well, right? Yeah, we're, well, we're incredibly successful and we're flexible. And I think, you know, for people, they're scared of the unknown, right? Sometimes you're just scared of what you don't know because that's not what we've typically gotten used to in the work environment. And, you know, I look at these women that I work with, 95% of my company are women. We have over 2,000 employees nationwide and they are so strong and if you give them the respect uh, and trust that they're going to do a great job and that they can still be present for their family and have that be part of, of your work environment. Amazing things can happen, um, but you've got to believe in that. And we believe in it wholeheartedly at Kendra Scott. We believe in supporting each other. We're a company of women that have each other's back. We root for one another. And when you join hands together, you're unstoppable. As a woman in the business space, which unfortunately still is very very much all men for the most part. Do you get any sort of pushback when you say, hey, this is how my office works? Do people roll their eyes or look at you weird? You know, I, in the beginning days, I think when we were, when I was envisioning what I wanted it to be and when we would have our babies, I mean, my first seven employees, the Super Seven, are still with me and we all brought our babies to work with us. Um, and in those early days, it was like, how can you really run a company that's going to do that or have this flexibility? Well, now the numbers show it. So it's not 
not just about, oh, we have this grand vision. We're growing a business in the retail environment, successful because we're standing behind the people that work for us. And we're saying, you know what? We're going to be supportive of the things that you need in your life. And I know that we're, we can do something great together. And literally, we're changing the world. It's not just creating great products. I mean, we are so philanthropic at Kendra Scott. So these women that are on my team are just also like, what can we do today to make an impact? And I think when you have all of those things, it's, an, it's a magical combination. Can you talk a little bit more about your philanthropy through Kendra Scott? So, you know, when I started out of this extra bedroom 16 years ago with $500, literally, um, you know, I decided then that I wanted, for me, success would be to be able to give back to my community in a meaningful way. So if anyone called, I never said no. It didn't matter who they were. Um, we were just a very giving philanthropic company. Since 2010, we've given over $25 million to women's, and ch women's charities, children's charities across the country and over 10,000 pieces of product this past year. So it's been, it's exciting because we're, you know, we're really doing things that are making a difference for these, for these families in communities now all over the country. So from our first store in Austin, Texas, now today to opening in New York City, uh, it's very exciting. Yeah, you say that your company has grown so substantially over the past few years. Uh, we read that earlier this summer you guys had to cancel an event for a crisis pregnancy center because of protests. I'm curious, as your company expands and you deal with bigger and bigger philanthropic events and charities, is it hard to balance that? I mean, charity can be very political, and especially in today's day and age, it seems like everything's political. It is, and I think one thing that we've always stood by at Kendra Scott is we won't turn people away. It doesn't matter who you are. If you need help, we want to be able to help you, and that's always been kind of our vision is that we're unbiased, and we want to help anyone, and if they're a 5013C and they're doing good, we want to support them, and like you said, there's sometimes there's fine lines that can happen. We try our best to make sure that we never can offend anybody. We want to be open and loving and kind to all people. And I think I'm really proud of that as our brand. And I, I, don't, I don't think that will stop. Now, of course, you're going to have some people that are never going to be happy no matter what you do. But I think at the end of the day, I think we're doing really great things. And I'm so proud of our giving hearts. Did that event change how you guys view philanthropy at all? You know, I think for us it doesn't. It, it doesn't, it doesn't, right? I think we always want to be thoughtful about the things that we do, but we also are open. We have open minds and we have open hearts at Kendra Scott. And that is one thing that our company will always have. So you guys, you said you started 16 years ago, and now you said you just opened your first store in Soho in New yes. York City. <laughs> Obviously a big, big growth. Very big, yeah. Um, you said you started making jewelry just, you know, in your home. So what would you say to another woman who has big dreams like yours to change an industry, what, no matter what it would be, to keep going even though they face setbacks. You face setbacks too, right? Oh my God, I mean, so many, right? And I think, you know, for any woman, it's like find what is the fire that is like lit inside of you, the things that you're passionate about. Um, you've got to love what you do because being an entrepreneur isn't easy and there's a lot of up and down 
down. And there's a lot of good days and there's plenty of bad days. So if you love what you do, it's very important. I think you've got to look for white space in the market. Don't be afraid to do something different. Be disruptive. Don't do what everybody else is doing. Put your own unique fingerprint on it. And there are going to be days you're going to want to give up and you've just got to dust yourself up, pick yourself up and say, I can do this. Surround yourself with great people. And I think, you know, don't be afraid to ask for help. None of us have gotten here on our own. And I think the most strong people in the world that I know are the ones that were, you know, able to pick up the phone and say, hey, I don't know what to do right now. I believe, you know, you're, you're an example, a great mentor and ask for help. Kendra, thank you so much for coming on. Congrats on the new store. Thank you. We're so excited. More AM to DM is up next. Okay, so we have a tweet here from Softy38. I am pumped for American Horror Story Apocalypse. Looking forward to seeing a lot of my favorite characters back in action. This feels like an end game. I mean, at the point that they're doing a crossover and it ends with the apocalypse, I would argue. <laughs> I like that. Be. I like that you look at me. Man, you know, I do not fuck with American you Horror don't? Story. No. Oh, I love it. I don't like horror it's, you things. You know why? It's me either. Mm -hmm. Me either. You know, That's there are a lot of great say. horror movies out here. But I don't think it's that scary. There are moments that are certainly shocking. I look away, but it's not like these scary at like what her hereditary man and these scary ass movies I'm out there. I'm sorry, the subway ads scare me for American Horror Story. <laughs> There's some real creepy stuff going on there. What's scarier than the subway? <laughs> Uh, we asked if you've ever regretted a job. Latria says, nope. In the words of Taraji, a check is a check. Oof. And that, yeah. I'm sorry, is that's what I said this morning. I agree. You know but, what? Sometimes you got to make that money. Again, Viola, Viola Davis. Davis. <laughs> a different kind of conversation. Yeah. But yes, sometimes a check is a check. Yeah. And I Get think, again, cash, you know, <laughs> that, that's a real fortune, right? When you, when you can get to the point in your career where finances, where security, like you've got that, and now it becomes about something different. Yeah, and that's, that's I exciting. think that's one of the things that's so insightful about the fact that she's talking she's about a movie now. from 2011. Yeah. Not that long ago. Yeah. Things have changed, and that's great. Yeah, because actors are very risk-averse in terms of, you know, speaking negatively about past work. Anyway, on the topic of jobs, Cini Martinez says, Oh, <laughs> compromising foundational principle, principles is priceless. See me. See me. I like to see me. It made me laugh. I'm into it. Oh, man. And also, of course, we've been talking about memes. Yes, absolutely. Uh, memes, you in danger, girl. Yep. Uh, here's a tweet from Joe Lee, because that EU law is crazy. Pose is generous enough to give us gifts. That, I'm sorry, I cannot read. Pose <laughs> is generous enough to give us the gifts that keep on giving time to create our own memes. I'm interested to see how this EU law thing works out. I mean, I get it. Definitely create your own memes. Own your own memes. Original content, I love it. It's king. I do love using AM to DM GIFs. But at the end of the day, also, sometimes, I mean, could you imagine not being able to use the Oprah, what is the truth GIF? Just think about, just think about what your top 10 gifts that you would just miss mm -hmm. so much if this actually went into And effect. I would also argue, and I'm sure people have probably written about this, I feel like in the same way that shows, you know, kind of years after they go off the air, being put on Netflix creates a new body of appreciation, mm -hmm. a new fan base, I think gifts kind of keep people often in the public 
kind of eye yeah, and imagination. Yeah, and that's what I mean by putting uh-huh. the toothpaste like back in the tube. Uh-huh. Like, I think that's one of the fights J.K. Rowling really fought about for Harry yeah. Potter for many years, and then all of a sudden realized, no, the fandom is driven by this kind of mm-hmm. creation, and it's actually a very important aspect of getting your work out there in 2018. Mm-hmm. That said, uh, they already voted on it, so whoops. <laughs> Thank you to our guests, <laughs> Shannon Purser, Kendra Scott, Paul McLeod, Ryan Broderick, Michael Blackman, and Stephanie McNeil. We'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow's our last show before Isaac and I go on our next road trip. And we're coming Trip. for you. Going to Texas, see. going to Louisiana. It's happening. It's going to be a lot of fun. Have you packed? <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> I not. know, I just felt like that. <laughs> I know you haven't packed. I haven't.